0: Hello everyone and welcome to the third episode of Ignite the Flame Audio. Basically for anyone who's just joining us, I'm just going to give you sort of a breakdown of the episode. What happens is we read a chapter to you and then we have a couple of sections. The first one being the origin of ideas, where we take the ideas that have been covered in the chapter and we break them down, basically explaining how they came to be, the inspirations behind them. And then we go into a second section known as the tips of the trade, where any of you who are aspiring to become authors yourself, whether it be self-published or published, basically we have tips, you know, that would help you along your journey. And that ranges from starting an idea all the way to actually getting yourself published. So that pretty much sums up the episode. Hopefully you enjoy it. I hope it lives up to your expectations. And without any further ado, let's get straight into it. I'm Wayne Telford and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. A Light in the Mist Chapter 3 Lying in Wait As I walk into the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for the Lord is my shepherd. Words I utter to myself, in the hope that they be more than just words and bring protection with them. Going into the great hall, with clicks and flashes of photography, the smell of magnesium phosphorus stains the air. I try to make heads or tail of the situation, but to no avail. I mean, how one can make sense of death apart from death itself? Only he can make sense of what he reaps. Although I must remain strong, fear must not grip me. I cannot be seen as the weak link, lest Flint lose all confidence in me, then what would I be? some coward or deserter. The awkwardness of the situation passes in an instant, just as the clock strikes the hour. How can everything seem so dark in the midst of daylight? It was time to act, and bring forth the light which once shone here. Ah, this must be the famous duo of detectives Jekyll and Flint. Ha, I've heard a lot about you. 24 criminals in a month, was it not? Asked Sergeant McLean, in a mocking tone, as if to a younger officer with no common sense of doing his job and having to be spoon-fed all the information only to regurgitate it later to seem intelligent. That is, twenty-five criminals in the first two months, Sergeant. I believe care to detail is in order to prevent seeming of a higher quality than which one is, I suggest, peering at McLean as though to prove a point of differentiation. May we see the manifested evidence something quick? I do not think I can handle this atmosphere any longer, gestured James. Poor fellow. He never did like confrontation even with that of criminals. He thinks that sitting down and discussing both sides in a civilized and honest way will present more evidence and a better conclusion than just trying to overshout one another or force it out of them. He was right, of course, just my fury rising again. How police officers can contest hubris when someone's been murdered? It is disrespectful, but in turn I had no right to be uncivilized in response. Sorry, old chap. I guess I got a little distracted, so to speak. Begging for forgiveness... Realising that McLean had more answers than I, being late and all, and that my job would be ever easier with that knowledge being conveyed. is most fine, Jackal. Really? We are but men of the law, and have to vent steam now. And then? It is what separates us from the young ones, McLean replies, with a look of normality returning to his face as a joke to get me uncomfortable around the collar. Must be a battle of wits between officer and detective, but I wanted no part in it. Shall we begin, James? James? "'James!' I look around frantically, as if earlier had scared him, but to my surprise he was already starting. There he was questioning a witness, and I had better do the same. "'So, Sergeant, tell me the facts surrounding Augustus Pine's murder, from the start, based on what you've gathered. With fountain in hand, and parchment in the other, just in case of a failing memory—' "'Well, irritus Jackal, in its shortest form. Pine enters the great hall for a gathering—' and then retreats between 4.30pm and 6pm to apparently collect himself for the night's festivities, although to what end remains unknown. Anyway, he then proceeded down the stairs to the Great Hall, and soon after finds himself too early, about 15 minutes I believe, according to eyewitnesses, and that is all. The rest you will have to inform me, as the body has not been observed yet. We were waiting for your coronary experience, as it were, passing the baton to me. Thank you, Sergeant. You have proven a great help in this matter. But what could he have been doing for an hour and one quarter? I am unsure of it, Chuckle. As a matter of fact, no one is sure. How do you mean? Well, no one saw him in the room he was said to have retreated to, but may have been in the great hall longer, I suppose. Hoping that no further questioning would be conducted, so as his grey cells did not overwork themselves. What was Augustus Pine to the royal household? The name holds no appeal. Not a double-named duke or royal. Not even a working description for the palace. So why was he here? Jekyll, I may have found something which might interest you. i recalled it from one of the eyewitnesses. Although they all seem on edge, invalidating the information. Exclaimed James, not knowing that murder's intent is to subject us all to unease, and that no matter how we try to bury our feelings, it finds its way to the surface in time, and normally one of its choosing." Very well, my friend. What have you discovered? Well, apparently, Pine was not an ordinary citizen. He was of great importance. The royal photographer, in fact. Photographer? Indeed. Well, that would explain entrance to the Great Hall. But why kill a perfectly harmless photographer? It just didn't make sense. I mean, if he had been a journalist and captured the killer's face, then so be it. But to kill a photographer, the answer proved as elusive as the journey to the heavens in flight. We push forward into the day, drawing near to that of lunch, and the area to become exceedingly busy from then on. We would have to move quickly if we were to shield this from the public eye and have it spread like wildfire. Well, cause of death appears sudden, his pupils dilated, so perhaps killed under the influence of some substance? Hands bloodied, favouring an open wound in the chest cavity, separating skin tissue and lung membrane from connective tissue of the ribcage. Some force exuded in order to generate the wound, and going by the state, I would imagine no skills are shown, resembling an old hand. But then it may be deception to insinuate such a conclusion. All these questions arising, and limited answers for them. Right, James? I agree, sir. Blood from the wound causing the crimson staining on the ground, but the overcoat and waistcoat are tucked back over the wound, as if to hide it. But what would be the purpose hiding the complete obvious? Unless it wasn't obvious. James and I lock eyes, as though sharing each other's thought. Could this be an old-hand murderer, or a beginner, who delights in making mistakes? Strange that they would want to cover what had occurred despite obvious mistakes being made. Did they think that a prize would be awarded for presentation, or perhaps not at all? So many questions whirling around our heads like a swarm of bees, each one with a different question or set of questions, with more questions within them. For the answer to present itself, we would have to hear the voice of the household to catch the killer lest they strike again. I reach for Pine's hand. It glistens like gold, but why against the pure white of the body? Trying to tell me something? Or could it be something else? I look at the hand in great detail, but there are no concealed mysteries, no blood staining as the other hand. But it was trying to tell me something nonetheless. May I reach out and touch? I cautiously make contact as if life could spring back into him and reveal his attacker. But what is happening? The room glistens in gold and vague outlines begin to appear. One of the photographer, golden light shimmering as rope across the room. The voice is so prominent and clear. I'll just set this over here, ready for the Grand Congressional. And then another figure. Their facial contour so precise, only colour lacks in detail their golden outline depicting an angelic form whilst concealing a devious figure within. The killer themselves? Motions are portrayed, my heart racing as if part of its elaborate dance, and fear gripping my being. As sadistic as it seems, evidence is given, but without proof. And slowly but surely, the room regains its colour. Gold fading, faces appear, and... it is finished. Now is the time to search through the awe and wonder and prove... whatever that was. What is it, Jackal? Some sort of revelation? Something like that, my dear boy. I saw a vision, whose origin is unknown, but I believe I know what happened on that fateful night. But without proof, it is just that. A vision. Well, let us not lose our heads upon it, and scope our surroundings. Perhaps our diligence will yield a reward. How right James was. Determination will always pay off, and if you fall then pick yourself up and try again until success is yours. Some of our history's greatest leaders failed, but success they pursued and success they captured. Perhaps the room would yield more secrets, more answers to the photographer's final moments. That vision only confirmed that I was already aware of and gave none the greater look into the evidence, but at least my now undivided attention was based on catching my adversary and bringing them to justice, so the streets may once again prove safe. Juggle. "'Would this be a clue?' proclaimed James, with an eerie echo across the room, as though within a church. "'It could possibly be, James. But what is it? Fur? Hair or some form or fabric?' "'Can you smell that?' "'Perfume of some sort, but of a high class of fashion, obviously from a lady of high standing.' "'No, I cannot smell anything on this.' "'Perfume? No, just magnesium phosphorus, Jekyll,' muttered James implying I had lost all sense and belonged to an insane sanctuary. Trust me, James, something inside tells me it's perfume of a high quality and we need to search around to find the source. You mean, I get to follow you around like some hound on the trail of a fox whilst you search for the perfume you keep talking about? Well, I will take that in a complimentary manner, but yes. We only have this lead to go on so far, old friend. Well, if you chase that lead, I will head across to the police station and see about the evidence yielding to the killer's identity. You'd be amazed at what modern forensic methods can unearth nowadays, exclaimed James, in a hopeful tone, favouring to solve this one himself, and tell his version of the story, in that of a fisherman, with exuberating tales filled with hubris, that heralds no factual knowledge, but tall tales. Although sometimes it is good to go it alone, to prove, to yourself, what you are capable of, and who knows... Maybe one day James may be the next inspector, solving cases such as these. Very well. If I pursue the perfume lead, and you clear abnormalities with McLean about the tools involved in this hideous act. Okay then, Jekyll. I will be going, and will return as soon as I'm able. I know what your interrogations are like. Especially your interrogations. Making a gesture toward my heart, as if a deeper secret lie beneath, even though I was all too aware. We set off in opposite directions, each leading us unto a different destiny, and holding hidden evidence that may or may not aid in revealing the perpetrator. Well, take care, James. May the Lord bless you and keep you, I say, knowing that all manner of help is needed in this profession, and a few extra eyes are always welcome. Plus, it is comforting. All right, Jekyll. You know I'm impeccable in being safe around danger. I mean, I've worked around yourself for long enough. Jokingly, I reply, yes, well, my table manners could use some improvement, I suppose. With a flurry of laughter, we both set off, I on foot, and flint in the carriage of Dalton Schumann, I believe. Upon leaving the establishment, I realized the scarceness of our evidence, a vision of heavenly enchantment with a dark revelation, fur from an item of clothing, perhaps, and a murder weapon now with Sergeant McCline, as it had clearly been removed from the body at the scene of the crime although I would be surprised if the sergeant had conducted his own private investigation and was waiting for our pursuit in order to match his efforts. Instead, I follow the fur and take to the streets, hoping for the source to become apparent in the midst of Victorian fashion. How optimistic I could be at times. I walk down the street and notice a grey covering coming over. Is it smog or cloud? No, it appears to be cloud as the heavens open up and rain pours like that of a tap thundering down on the unsuspecting public, drenching their newly received hair trims, and undoing all of their styling. But what catches my eye is all the furs. I approach each woman of class, addressing them as ma'am, so as not to arouse suspicion of my acts. Each response is the same. The shop on the east end of the district. Mr. and Mrs. Ilias Furs and Wares Incorporated. I would have to question these people of salesmanship on who this item may have belonged to. I come to a new-looking shop of purple and black, with fine wooden banners and signposts indicative of great wealth and prospect, with its windows engraved in ornate lettering and items of exquisite fabric and furs from all manner of living things. As the door opens, a bell tolls, some sort of rocking mechanism to alert the shop owners to a customer's presence. A fine idea, to say the least. Good morning, or should I say good afternoon. Are the owners of this establishment present? I ask hoping that mistake would be enough to open conversation, to avoid searching and discovering things I have no right to see, then to go through a series of elaborate hoaxes to hide my true intention, lest it frighten key witnesses away. Greetings, young man. And how may I be of service on this dreary day? I am Mrs. Ilias. And allow me to introduce myself. I am Mr. Ilias. Jim Ilias. Giving a gesture of a handshake to be welcomed immediately, unless wanting to offend this man's hospitality and perhaps vital knowledge. A pleasure to meet your acquaintance. I am Inspector Isaac Jackal of London's Constabulary, investigating the murder of Augustus Pine, and was hoping to address your memory on this occurrence, and perhaps shed some light on the situation, if you would be so kind. Not to seem reluctant, Inspector, but what leads you here, of all places? I am glad you ask, Mr. Elias, because this piece of fur was discovered at the scene of the crime, and I was wondering who it may have been sold to. Do you keep records of your customers? Asking in the intention that they would allow me another lead, and not come to a stump this early in the investigation. Yes, sir, that particular shred appears to be from an item sold to a Miss Idlewyn. Dancing, as if unrecognising the name, a complete stranger, but impossible. New owners always introduce themselves to promote customer-owner relations. Is something the matter, Mr. Ilias?' I inquire, knowing full well the answer to be yes, and placing Ilias in a position that only allowed forward motion like a game of drafts, only to be taken by the opposing counter when all of a sudden, unexpectedly... Yes, she is a fine woman with an elegant sense of wares and taste. The one with the large hat. Oh no, you must have been out on business, dear, and I must have dealt with it. Suspicious one more time. Why would Mr. Ilias be out on business when he has a shop that is newly opened, and why would this elegant woman not have come back so Mr. Ilias could make her acquaintance? I would like to pursue deeper, but I had my next step, and that quenched my thirst for now. Thank you for your time. I will keep you abreast of any further developments, and if you recall anything further, do not hesitate to approach a constable and ask for me. Enjoy the rest of your day, and may your business flourish. As I take my leave, I can hear compliments in the background, but could it be hiding a more tainted opinion? Only time would tell. I step out onto the pavement and turn to face the alley, flanking the shop's western side, and see a distorted shadow discarding something in the waste. I wait for them to retire and retreat into the back entrance toward the outer corner. I proceed forward with caution to investigate. Hesitant at first, I reach to pull the waste container's lid, perhaps to find an object or piece of evidence hidden in its cadavers. But what I see is... Darkness. What did I expect? Betray the loyalty of your fellow people. Suspect them of murder. How did I think they would react? The events play within my mind like glimmers of memory, all sequestrated together. I could not help but wonder just how far this would go before revealing its intimacy. But as I was to find out, this case would require more of me than just my well-being. And for that, dear reader, I urge you to pursue this tale onwards. I awaken to a bed with something of a decreased temperature resting on my cranium with the inside feeling like a church tower during a wedding service. Ah, awake, are we? You gave me quite the fright, sir. Are you all right? mutters a dim voice, soft and yet commanding. Was I dead? Or was it a stranger who had seen it within the kindness of their heart to nurture me to health? Can you see, sir? How many digits am I expressing? Um, two, three, one, four, three. I murmur, in the hopes of getting them all correct, and so as not to test my brain further and cause more pain. Well, the good news is only a mild concussion. And the bad news? I implore, laughing the words into existence, as if there could not be any worse news. You are going to be a partial tender for a while, so I suggest no vigorous movement of the head, or any involving your neck, just in case your back was affected also, exclaimed the voice filling my voided intellect astonishingly well. Are you a practitioner of some sort? Maybe of medical science? Yes. I am Professor McCain, healer of most bodily ailments, or at least some bodily ailments. Oh, brilliant. Another Scotsman. Referring to the accent, and knowing Mook to be Scottish in origin. No, just the name, I assure you. Actually, I reside from the south, far away from Scotland. Do you have an issue with the Scottish people, implying I to be prejudiced against them? No, it's just difficult to ponder their words in the greatest of mind, not to mention when I'm not at my best. Leaning backwards so as not to strain my neck, for once I thought it probably best to listen to the doctor this time. Do you have any idea what happened to me? I ask, to clear up the confusion that coursed through my already hollowed head. Cannot say that I recall, sir. I was in luck to find you laying in the street. I thought perhaps you had collapse due to illness or under the influence of alcohol. If you will pardon the expression, of course, I do not wish to offend. The professor stated, with mouth puffing away on a pipe, with ornate images grafted into its mechanisms, and a polished white-on-brown appearance with silver rims, and written upon it the words... Knowledge is shortening the length of time between the question and the answer, but the last thing I remember was lifting the lid to a waste container down a side alley. I understand, sir. Times are rough. No, actually, I'm trying to gain an answer to a very discouraging case, abruptly replying. How dare he accuse me of sifting through the waste of society? Had he no idea who I was? Actually, no, he didn't. How rude of me not to introduce myself. I must have forgotten my etiquette with that strike to the head. Begging your forgiveness, sir, I have forgotten my manners in this. I am Inspector Isaac Jackal, a pleasure to meet your acquaintance, and although I seem dismal, I am most grateful for your hospitality. Many thanks to you. Erasing any prior barbaric encounter betwixt a meeting of two intellectuals. (laughs) No worry need be applied, Jackal, was it? Water under the bridge, as it were. And now that you have returned to normality, how would you feel about partaking in a glass of my finest champagne? Imported, of course. Not to seem impolite, my good fellow, but I have no taste for alcohol. I believe one should never relinquish control of one's actions, lest he end up dead at nature's convenience. But please, do not take offence. I simply wish to return to my endeavours with a clear head. That is all. But of course, my good man. I only meant it in the medicinal sense. But I understand a clear head you will need if you're going to catch the assailant. I hear they struck in the royal household, is that correct? And gave half of Scotland Yard the false trail. Jack the Ripper all over again. Not if I can help it. And where did you hear that? The matter is supposed to be under lock and key, I stated with eyes agape. Had we missed someone who did not belong? No. I take care of the bodies in the morgue. Postmortems, autopsies, those kind of things. Oh, I see. Well, of course, you being a doctor and practitioner of the body, I suppose it makes sense with you being local. Can you divulge anything about the body? Nothing you have not already revealed? The wound, blood upon the clothing, piece of satin on the tongue? The usual. Intrusively, I reply, Satin? What satin? Now having the prospect of a further lead excited me to the point of jumping to my feet, but my head would not allow it. Yes, a line of satin lacing the tongue, We figured it was due to a binding of some sort, or choking as the possible cause of death. But how could that be? There was the wound made by the jagged item. Was that not the cause of death? Perhaps not. And if not, then why the need for it? Interesting. But more implications were needed. Well, thank you for your hospitality, but my time grows short, and I must return to the royal household, lest this killer attempt to strike another blow. Of course. Glad to have been of assistance. Hopefully the next time we encounter, it will be under more sublime circumstances. Indeed it will. Good day for now, and thank you again, Professor. I raise my body up from the bed, gathering every inch of strength left within me to make it to the door. Fighting through the pain and disarray, I stumble out onto the walkway, and luckily, as I fall again, I am caught by arms, which are at least a little trustworthy. Officers Daltz and Schumann but the look on their faces is one of horror and violence, as though something even more terrible had occurred. It's Flint, Inspector. Something happened at the station. You had better come and look. Here, allow us to give you aid. They launched me into the back of the already prepared carriage. This was a matter of great urgency, and tell me to secure myself so time is of the essence. What had Flint gotten into now? Or was it linked to what had happened to us? We rush through the busy streets, clearing the way with audible vocalizations, alerting other carriages to our presence, and I see motor vehicles race past as patches of color on a blank canvas, the images sending me further into nausea and fainting. Darkness consumes me again until... Will I ever wake? Is this the end? This is all I think. But no, there is still work to be done. I cannot leave now. I have a duty to do and people to save. Jackal. Jackal, wake up. Wake up, sir. Jackal! The dead would have been woken by that last one, but I am grateful it did wake me. I can feel myself slipping further each time, drawing closer to the point of no return. There he is, sir, on the stairs there. Medical practitioners attending to him, but he insists he is adequate. As if nothing happened. Not even a scratch on his face. Yes, he always was a good liar. (laughs) I'd better talk with him and find out what has become of us, I infer, hoping to keep Flint's secret from the officers for much longer than this murder hold out. I approached James, cowered over as a child who had recently received a beating of the cane. Poor fellow. The officers did not know him as well as I did. I could tell whatever happened, it had scared James half to... well, scared him. Hello, old friend. You look like you've seen better days. Before I knew it, He leapt up and embraced me like a long-lost family member, trying to find safety in my grasp, but I must admit, it caught me by surprise. Forgive me, Jekyll, for acting queer, but I've been through quite the ordeal. You would not believe. Try me, I said, expecting a tale far more devious and adventurous than mine. Well, after interrogating the sergeant, I went back to look at the evidence in their storage compartments. He went on to describe a dark room with light shining upon the evidence, as if it had a radiant beauty about it, and that shadows would startle you as size was enhanced. For instance, a spider would appear man-sized in an instant, which would be enough for any arachnophobiac. Yes, yes, go on. Well, I stumbled upon an old prison chamber behind the cabinets, built into the old foundations where prisoners were bound with stockades and the like. They were still padlocked shut. I went to investigate a flicker of light from behind one of them, and all of a sudden... Well, all of a sudden, making gestures with my hand so as to urge James onward and coax any further memory out. That's it. I cannot remember. I woke up in the stockade surrounded by the evidence of the murder and someone placing a bag over my head whilst making sure my hands touched everything. I think they wanted me for the murder, Jekyll. And whoever attacked me knew what their intentions were. It seems as though we were both struck down in the act of the law, as it were. And whoever the guilty party is, they obviously know of our presence and do not want us reaching our conclusions, lest they get away with this. Knowing that, we needed to stick together from then on. We set off for our next lead, in the aspiration that the old saying, alone we are strong, together we are invincible, still have meaning. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. Of course, this is the section where we go through the chapter that you've just listened to, And we come up with the ideas that have been expressed in the chapter and how they came to be. So getting straight off, what we notice is the forensic side of things is quite limited. It's quite basal. There's a section in the book where it mentions, you know, the severing of different tissues, like lung membranes from from the rib tissue, connective tissue, that sort of thing. But it doesn't really go into a lot of detail. And this is because it not only reflects the forensic knowledge of the time which was also quite limited but it also shows that detectives you know forensics was only really starting to become sort of like a modern science you know it was uh, not so much of an adopted practice at the time so obviously this is helped to reflect the fact that forensic studies were obviously limited Um, but in future novels you'll notice that the forensic starts to become more of a central focal point of each of our stories the second point is there's a reference to Chicken Run. Uh, there's a moment where James says, um, let's not lose our heads. Now, obviously, for anyone who's seen Chicken Run, um, you'll remember a moment where uh, one of the characters, Bunty, turns around and she's like, lose our heads. And then they all start like sc- uh, screaming. And uh, obviously, this was an amusing uh, part to me, and it ended up finding its way in into our books. Uh, anyone who's seen uh, past episodes will know that we put you know, uh, Easter eggs, if you will, uh, in these books, which reference to films, music, uh, games we're playing, that sort of thing. It just helps to give sort of like a an oversight, if you will, to our inspirations and sort of what we're picking from, as mentioned in the tips of the trade of the former episode. The third point is that toward the end of the chapter, we see a vulnerability in uh, the character of James Flint but it's normally hidden behind a hardened exterior because when we first meet James, he's very much uh, centered around bravado. You know, he's, he's, you know, stroking lions, and, you know, he, he comes across as this real sort of tough man and, and real sort of hardened exterior. But inside, um, he's actually quite vulnerable. And we start to see that uh, in this character uh, when Jekyll is, is brought to him and he's had quite the scary ordeal. He embraces him. And then he comes away and he says, oh, um, Jekyll, sorry for acting weird. Um, you know, I've just been through quite the ordeal. And it, it goes to show the the sort of strength of bond between these two characters, uh, between Jekyll and James uh, as characters. It's almost like it's, it's more than just a detective and a constable. It's more of a brotherly bond, you know, between the two of them. They don't just share secrets, but they share um, each other's weaknesses and strengths, too. The fourth point is the reference to customer voice. Now, anyone who's worked in customer service, you'll know what I mean. Basically, you'll be speaking normally. And then when a customer comes up to you, you'll have uh, your tone of voice will heighten. So, for example, I tend to notice it in, in women a lot more. Um, when they're talking normally, they're sort of talking around sort of like a midpoint. And then as soon as the customer comes in, they're sort of like, hi, oh, yeah, you're all right," You know, so you'll see that the tone sort of elevates, um, which is what we I would call customer voice, and we see the same with Mr. Ilius Basically, what happens is when Jekyll comes in, he sounds when he starts very much like Jekyll himself. He sounds very much like him, and then all of a sudden he starts putting on this fancy sort of brouhaha type tone, and that is, in every sense of the word, the customer voice. So he starts off talking again like Jekyll, and then he sort of comes into this. Oh, I am Mr. Ilias, you know. Um, so that's obviously a direct reference to customer voice. And like I said, anyone who's worked in customer service will recognize that. And pretty much anyone who now goes into any sort of establishment, you'll now notice that form of behavior. The final point is the fainting experience that Jekyll um, goes through when he goes down the side alley. Uh, he opens the uh, lid to the waste disposal unit and basically gets clouted over the back of the head. Now, whilst I've not personally been clouded over the back of the head i do know what it is to faint or black out so to speak so that was an experience that i had actually gone through so it always makes it more relatable if you do include these things in your book because obviously people that have also gone through that experience can relate to it for a start so if you have those experiences that you are comfortable with sharing and you know you you think that it would add uh, a sense of dynamic to the story. By all means, put it in there, you know. So um, not to go into too much detail, but basically uh, it was in year six. I was like dressed in all black, basically. And we were like rehearsing for our levers assembly. And it was during the middle of a heat wave. And basically I just felt really, really hot, really warm. So I decided, right, okay, I need to take my jumper off because this is just ridiculous. As soon as I took it off, there was like this rush of cold air. Next thing I know, I, I wake up on the hall floor and... I've got my teacher, Miss White, staring at me in the face and she's like, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I just like lost five seconds, apparently. But apparently I was out for about 20 seconds. And then I was taken to the library, given like cold water and they had like the air conditioning on. It was like super freezing in there. So it was really nice. I then got told later by the rest of the class that I had hit the back of my head on like a stack of chairs, but I didn't feel a thing. So obviously with that experience you can then incorporate it into your characters into the storyline and that's what we did with Jekyll um to add sort of a sense of realism to the story and um just sort of give more sort of dynamic to the character themselves which you're more than welcome to do uh if if you're thinking of writing your own story so that pretty much wraps it up for this section so let's go ahead and get into the next one And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Uh, Picking up from last time, uh, we spoke about inspirations and how they can be used to influence your storyline. I urge you to keep going back to the origin of ideas section of this podcast uh, because it's a constant display of inspirations which come from personal experiences as well as other things like games, music, books, etc., Um, but basically in this section, we're going to be actually getting down to the naming of the book. Now, obviously the last episode, uh, basically you've got your inspirations. So what I would have, what I would have done myself is I would have used those inspirations to then come up with a basal idea. So what I mean by that is the story that you're going to come up with, is it going to be that you've been playing a game and you think that that storyline would work really well for a book? uh all you'd have to do is just change the characters a bit and and maybe add some things here and there but it would make a really good storyline or is it a book that you've read that you think lacks a bit of detail or you could pretty much not copy it but you could use that framework and then you could come up with your own twist on it or your own view on it Uh or is it things like a multitude of ideas that you've just jumbled together. So by this point, you should have what I would say are sort of like the baby sort of stages of an idea. So what I normally do now, obviously this might not work for everybody, but what I normally do is I come up with the name before I actually start thinking about the processes involved in the book. Now, of course, some people prefer to leave that to the end, and that's fine. That's fine by all means. So, you know, in that sense, I would advise you to skip ahead to the future episodes and then maybe come back to this one. But basically, getting into naming a book, um, it's a lot easier than, than you would think, because you can pretty much call your book anything. You know, it can have something to do with the actual book itself. It could have nothing to do with the book. You have creative control, full creative control. So, you know, um, to use an example, A Clockwork Orange. It has absolutely nothing to do with the story itself. You know, there's nothing that refers to a clock. There's nothing that refers to orange, but it's a perfect title and it works so well for the book. Um, whereas if you have, uh, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it actually tells you what the book is about. So you can pretty much experiment, you know, with these things. Uh, but for naming a book, uh, for us personally, I decided to use a light in the mist because it has like a sense of mystery to it. You know, you're sort of looking out. It's a foggy morning. All you see is literally the light of a lamppost or the light of the moon. And you're like, hmm, it, there's sort of like this this sense of mystery to it. Now, obviously, this has been um, compiled to like be almost cliché. Because most mystery novels will have a something in the something. So the woman in the window or something like that. But don't be afraid to fall into cliches because they're not always a bad thing. And I I didn't actually realize that I had fallen into a cliche until like two years after it was published. So it really depends on whether someone points it out to you and whether you want to stay away from cliches or, when you, or whether you want to continue with them. But there's no real bad sort of side to, to cliches at all. But it really depends on what you're going for for your title. Do you want it to be mysterious? Do you want it to be whimsical? Do you want it to be humorous? You know, and just play around with a few titles. Just play around with a few titles. See which one sort of captures you and think to yourself, what would I want to see? If I was walking past a book, what would I want to see? Would I want to see a title that grabs my attention? Would I want a title that makes me laugh? Would I want a title that scares me? You know, so I'm like, oh. That, that's just, you know, maybe jump or something. So I want to, I want to read it, you know, something like that. What, what is the effect that you're hoping to get through that? So, like I said, you can use something as plain as one word. Um, we have several novels, uh, that are due to come out. Um, obviously throughout these series, you'll notice that our titles, you know, pretty much range from all across the spectrum from one-worded titles to quite a few words. You know, uh, the Guinness Book of World Records, I think, is like the, the longest book title is 26 words. So you really can't limit yourself, really. You, you could name a book whatever you want, basically, and it can be describing what the book is about, all sorts of things. You know, it, it could be pretty much whatever you want. So just bear that in mind when you come up with, you know, the title for your book. And just, I would advise you to play around as much as possible. And then whichever one, you know, sort of leaps out at you, whichever one, you know, you can actually start building an idea around, that would be the one I would go with. So that pretty much sums up for this section. And that wraps up the third episode. Thank you guys for joining us as always. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got what you wanted from it. Um, Just one thing to mention uh, that I forgot to... Mentioned in the previous section, when you do come up with a name for your book, especially when you're publishing, the thing to remember is when you have a few working titles, not to get rid of them because what happens is it's not so much when you're self publishing, but when you're publishing normally, what will happen is they'll check that title against a database of already existing titles, already existing names, and if that one is flagged, it means that you'll have to change the name because it's already taken. So it does pay to have a few names sort of in the bag uh, for you to choose from. So just to basically add that on to the previous section, obviously we'll endeavor to include the links uh, to anything that's been mentioned um, in the episodes below. And of course, if you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to head on over to another podcast called genuine chit chat. It's hosted by a friend of mine, uh, Mike Burton. It's a basically conversation based podcast. Um, it, covers all sorts of a range of topics you know so if that seems like the kind of thing you'd be interested in and if you enjoyed this podcast then be sure to head over there and I'm sure you'll enjoy that podcast as well well that pretty much sums up for this episode again guys thank you for making us part of your day I understand how busy everybody is and it really means the world to us that you would take half an hour 40 minutes out of your time just to basically make us a part of it. it really means a lot to us thank you and I'll see you next time